wonderful worship. We just pray together. Father, thank you for the wonderful ministry of the Holy Spirit. Only he can teach such a wide range of people from a wide range of backgrounds and wide range of needs. So we invite him to come. Holy Spirit, come. Teach us. Take us by the heart. Take us places we'd otherwise never go. Just don't leave us the same. We need perspective. Let us see through your eyes today. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I was kind of at a crossroads with this message today. Next Sunday is Pentecost Sunday, and I'm shooting for that. I think there's something in that for us. I feel like next Sunday is just like an open door, like sunshine and a large field. I think something's going to happen. Something's going to break. And uh, I want to be part of that. I want to see that happen. I think this whole time, this whole season, this strange season we've been in is coming to a close. Something new is opening in front of us. But I don't normally preach the calendar, and I don't normally make sure all my sermons line up with everything that's going on in the rest of the church. I just feel like we need to be current with where God's speaking to us as the people here. But I do want to teach on Pentecost Sunday, and I, I, there's a number of people here who, who need to receive the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit, and I want to preach to that end. I want to see everyone get in who can get in. We've been teaching about waiting. We've been in a season of waiting, how to wait well. I felt we need to start introducing people more about the kingdom of God, what that looks like in everyday life, uh, why that's so important. And... Um, then we had Ascension Sunday, and then Pentecost Sunday. So this message is kind of a, it's not even a sermon, I don't feel. It's kind of a review, an overview I'd like to bring uh, that I think will heighten where we're going with Pentecost Sunday. If you'd like to go with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. taught a few weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago now, it seems like it's a blur, <clears throat> about Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a donkey as a mighty king. And nothing like that, the joy, if you can imagine the joy, they're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Nothing like that had happened for a thousand years. A thousand years before David begins his his reign by bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the city of Jerusalem, and the place, the place went crazy. The people went berserk. It was just such a, an incredible, joy-filled time. <clears throat> and a thousand years go by. That's a long time when you think of America being, you know, 250 years old. That's a long time be between joys, and no nothing like this had happened where spontaneously Jesus comes into the city, the place goes crazy, the kids are shouting, singing, dancing, breaking branches off the trees, laying their clothes on the ground. The Jesus, the king of glory, comes into the, comes into the city. Nothing like that had ever happened before. It was very prophetic. It was fulfillment of, of old prophecies that they had been longing for. It's that 
moment of release where we've been wanting and waiting and this has been promised and now it's here. Can you imagine the joy of the place? And then three days later or so, all that joy is lost because the king of glory is nailed on a tree on a side, on a side road overlooking the city so everyone could see his shame. And he's hung between two thieves. The thing looked like it failed. It looked like if you can imagine the people who had all the hope in this and all of a sudden it's just dashed in the worst possible way and, and then Jesus dies. You've been longing for the Messiah. You've been longing for a, a new government. You've been longing for the bondage, being oppressed by pagans ruling over you. <clears throat> and he was going to change everything. And then so quickly and so in such a crazy way, a disorienting season, like a, just a season like they'd never experienced before, the whole thing is lost. Jesus dies. And the disciples, they, they're all gathered in this upper room. The door's locked for fear of the Jews. That's what it says. Verse 19, so we're John 20, verse 19. And it's the first day of the week. It's the evening uh, of the first day of the week, and the doors are locked for fear of the Jews. And we know what that's like. What a crazy time. A morning, deep morning, disorienting. And then all of a sudden, Jesus walks through a wall and steps into their now. Can you imagine what that would have been like? And they're shocked. They're beyond shocked. They, they, I mean, just an amazing moment. And they can't believe their eyes. He says, handle me. Look at my hands. You can see daylight through the palms of his hands. The three-cornered scar went right through his, just the size of a, a quarter going right through his palm of his hand. His feet all scarred with holes. Look at my feet. Handle me. And they're shocked. They're, they're silent. He says, do you have any food? He said, they thought it was a ghost. And he says, it's not a ghost. Ghosts don't have bodies. And he said, give me some food. They gave him some fish, and he stood there, and he ate it. You can imagine, time must have just stood still. They're watching him chewing on the fish, looking at them, and they can't believe it. Then he says to them, Verse 22, it says, receive the Holy Spirit, and he breathes on them. And I believe that's the moment that they became born again. I can't see any moment in Scripture leading up to that. And it had to be on the other side of the cross. And he breathes on them. And that, that takes us back to Genesis. That takes us back to a, a time when God made Adam and then got down on his knees and breathed into his nostrils and he became a life-giving being, became a spirit being. And now, this whole new beginning where they become life-giving beings of spiritual life. I mean, the parallels are amazing here. And Jesus commissions them and talks about them extending forgiveness. We have the power to do that. It's just an amazing moment. And, and then he disappears, 
And, and they come back together in a huddle and they're talking over each other. They're absolutely excited. They're, they're just, I mean, can you imagine what would be going through their heads? And then Thomas comes in. Keys are jangling at the door and Thomas steps in. And this is a message. This, you don't, this is a, a reminder, you shouldn't miss a prayer meeting. <laughs> Get that message out there. Write that down in your, tweet that. Thomas comes in, and when he left, you could feel the air was so thick with grief. And now when he comes in, it's filled with joy that you could feel it in the environment. Can you imagine what it would have been like for Thomas? What a mind-bender that would be. He steps in, and their faces have changed. The, the grief is gone. The mourning, the confusion has completely evaporated in the place. There's, there's, there's joy and peace Jesus stepped into there now and said, peace be unto you. I think they felt something. What an amazing moment. And they told him what happened. And he said, he declares, he says, unless I can put my finger in the holes in his hand, unless I can put my hand in his side, I will not believe it. What an amazing thing. And these are his friends. These are guys he just spent, he just spent three and a half years walking together, three and a half years hiking, three and a half years of camping, three and a half years of all kinds of stuff, and he won't believe his friends. An amazing moment. And then the scripture says, you can follow this beginning in verse 24, eight days go by. They had to be like the longest eight days a person ever endured. Eight days, and, and they're, they're worshiping, they're, they're getting up, they, 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 everything's kind of restored, life, life becomes good again, and uh, I can see them preparing breakfast and singing and whistling, and everything's, they've been born again, everything's been new, and over in the corner with his arms crossed across his chest is Thomas, and he's in an absolute funk. He's got one of those rain clouds you see in the cartoons over his head because he, he, can't, he can't enter into their joy because he's declared, I will not believe this unless I can see it with my eyes and touch it and handle it. I will not believe it. And Jesus heard him. And he just waits. Thomas had to be miserable Eight days, that's a long time of being locked away in a room. There's nothing to do and nowhere to go, and he's there for eight days, and they're humming, and they're singing, they're worshiping. I mean, the, life is all of a sudden, it's like the sun come out for them, except for Thomas. Why eight days? What a long time. And then it says that, Verse 26, that, that Jesus, the doors were shut again. They're still locked. There's a place for that. And Jesus appeared and stood in their midst and said, peace to you. What a moment that must have been. And all of a sudden, he looks at Thomas. He's reach here. Bring your hand here. Put your, put your finger in my hand. Put your hand on my side. And he totally, totally crumbles. And he says, my Lord and my God, Jesus is alive. 
Jesus is real. Jesus can step into your now. He can step into this room. He could step in this room this, this morning. He could step into our now in a tangible, visible, manifest way. But he says to you, he says, it's better, it's better that you believe without seeing. And it's better for you. It's better for you spiritually. But Jesus heard Thomas. Jesus heard his heart. He heard his words. And he plays them back to him. Jesus is listening this morning. Jesus is listening. Jesus is here. We can't see him, but he's here. He knows our heart. He knows our indifference. He knows our doubts. He knows our, our mindset. He knows everything about us. He knows what we said in the car on the way to church. He knows all of this and could play it back to you. And he did this to Thomas. It's absolutely powerful. Now, there's a 40-day period from the time Jesus rose from the dead uh, there's a 40-day period, then another 10-day period on top of that. That 50 days is called Pentecost. The word Pentecost is 50. And, and if you uh, take chapter 21, there's a lot of stuff that happens in this 40 days. Uh, for example, there's this moment where they're waiting. They're in the upper room. And uh, Peter declares to the disciples, he says, I go a-fishing. He took a bunch of them. I think there may be seven of them. Went, went back into Galilee, back into Capernaum, got back out. They borrowed a boat or rented a boat, however they did it. And when he said, I go fishing, what he's really saying is, I'm not waiting anymore. This whole waiting thing is getting to me. And he's, he's not saying, I'm going out to do some recreational fishing to pass the time and to relieve some of the stress. He's saying, I'm going back to business I go a fishing. He says, I, I can't do this anymore. This whole waiting thing is just too hard. And so when he said, I go fishing, the other guy says, We're going too. And chapter 21, I, I can't read it for you, but it'd be wonderful for you to read it on your own. It's just an amazing moment where they got back out. I believe Peter just said, I, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go back to work. I can't do this anymore. I'm going back to business. And we know what that feels like, right? I mean, if there's ever been a time in your life where you know what that feels like, it's now. These days, I go fishing. And they got out there, and they fished all night. And they're probably by the three and a half years ago, they lost all the calluses. I mean, hauling those nets in overhand, uh, Wet, wet nets and, and soft hands. I imagine their hands hurt, their shoulders hurt, their backs hurt like they'd never hurt before. They're casting their nets all night long, and they don't catch a sardine. I mean, it just it's, it's not just the hard work. It's not just getting back in the shape again. It's not just that. It's you're not catching anything. And if you can just picture them gently rowing back in the shore and the fog is lifting off the lake and the, the day is starting to dawn and they're scooting into harbor. They've been out all night on this thing. And there's this man crouched on the beach over a small fire. He doesn't even get up. He's there with his sombrero and his cloak. He's got a bed of coals, some bread, some fish. 
And his voice carries so beautifully across the smooth water. And he says, children, did you catch any fish? They just probably couldn't even get up and answer. They shake their heads. And then his voice carries out again. He says, cast your net on the other side. As crazy as it is, they, they, they did it. They've been fishing all night. They hadn't caught anything. Cast your net on the right side of the boat, it says in verse 16. <clears throat> and you will find some. And they did it. And all of a sudden, they're, they're, the side of the boat just about sinks. The gnats go down heavy. Next thing you know, the water's boiling with fish. And they can hardly hang on to the net. And they're all grabbing it. And one of them says, it's the Lord. And Peter dives in the water. It's the Lord. He dives in. He can't, he can't wait. And he rushes up to the shore. And there's, there's this man who doesn't look like Jesus. And he's just squatting over a, a beautiful bed of coals. And he's got some fresh uh, falafel bread. And he's got some fresh fish on there. And he says, bring, bring some more fish. Peter goes back and they haul in the net and he gets some fresh fish and throws it on the coal. If you've never had that, it's an amazing experience. And all, they hear, all you hear for the next little while is just the gravel crunching, crunching under their feet. There's nothing being said. It's sizzle of the fish on the, on the coals. And Jesus is taking a piece of fish, putting it in a small pieta, and, and handing it to each one. They've been fishing all night. It's cold. And now all of a sudden, they're just eating something warm. They're just standing there. And he doesn't say anything. It's one of the most amazing pictures. And he just makes sure everyone has some bread and some fish. And they're just standing there looking at him and eating, and Peter's dripping wet. They're all maybe dripping wet. And it's just silence for a long time. Jesus isn't a talker like we talk. He doesn't just say a bunch of nothing. And it's just more waiting. Finally, he looks at Peter, and they catch eyes. He looks over at the fish, and he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? Peter's chest caved. You can imagine the weight of those words. He said, of course, you know, you know. You know I love you. And then silence, and they just go back to eating again. And a little while later, the catch eyes is, Peter, do you love me more than these? It'd be like hitting, being hit in the chest with a ball-peen hammer. I mean, just horrible feeling. And it's called reproof. And Jesus can reprove us with no condemnation that speaks to the very issues of our heart. There's no condemnation but it just peels your heart. It just, it touches you like nothing else. And it's touching the big issue. And, and Jesus could say that to any one of us these days. He, it could be something on, on TV or our laptop or our work or our say anything that we give our hearts to rather than doing what he's wanting us to do. But when he said it to the third time, Peter just 
must have just buckled. There's no reproach in the sense of, of a shame. He's after something. He's after something. Just like he was after something in Thomas. I think Jesus is after something in us. I know he's been after something in me. I know he's been digging around in me. I think he's been bringing me closer to himself and touching areas of my heart I haven't felt him touching in a long time. He's used this waiting, this time of silence. He's after something in me. I'm not content. I, 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 my time isn't always spent the way it should be. My, my affections, my devotion isn't what it should be. He's after something in me. If you go with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Let's go to verse 3 and spend a few minutes there. He says, uh, he presented himself alive after his suffering by, suffering by many infallible proofs. Being seen by them during 40 days. And speaking to them the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. What an amazing thing. A 40-day period. That's a long time. We have a little better sense of what 40 days looks like when you're confined when life, doesn't, life isn't usual, life doesn't go on as busy as usual. But during that 40 days, Jesus would show up at different times in different ways, and they didn't always recognize him, but he was teaching them about the kingdom of God. And, and that, that is something he wants to get into us. He wants to get a deeper revelation of, of God being in control, God being the one reigning in our hearts, the one that sits down, that, that, who decides where we go and what we do. That's the issue. I think that's the issue that God's been working on us these past few months. Can he be the king of our hearts? Can he be the king of our life? Can he be the one who decides? Not the dictates of our flesh, not our feelings, not our emotions, not our American lifestyle, not the American dream. Is it, are we going to be kingdom oriented, kingdom people. And Jesus would come and, and talk to them pertaining to the things over a 40-day period. One, one of the presidents of Elam one time, he says, wouldn't you like to get those tapes? <laughs> I laugh so hard. This is back in the time there weren't podcasts, internets. The way if you want to get a message, you got it off a cassette tape. If you're 62 years old, you'd, you'd know that. You'd, you'd recognize that. So then... Verse 4, when they're assembled together, he got them together, and he, and he commanded them. He says, don't depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you've heard of me. Now, what he's talking about here that's so powerful is before the crucifixion, and Jesus told them that he was going to be crucified. Jesus told them that they were going to reject him, that he was going to be turned over to the pagans to be killed, that he would rise again on the third day. They didn't get any of it. And, and it's not their fault. It's just, how do you get your head around that? How do you understand that? It's impossible, practically. He said it, and then they reviewed it with him after it all happened, said, I told you this was going to happen. This is what I told you. And he would take him through from, from Moses all the way up through the Psalms and all the prophets and explain everything that just happened scripturally, biblically, help them to understand that. He was doing that during this 40-day period. But... but Leading up to the crucifixion, he said, I'm leaving. 
But I will not leave you orphanless, or as orphans. I will not leave you uh, without a comforter, someone who can work with you and walk with you and talk with you and give you perspective and someone who will teach you and someone who will speak to you. And he began describing the ministry of the powerful Holy Spirit. And he said, the Holy Spirit is coming. In fact, if I don't leave, he won't come. And he says, you really want me to leave because you'll want him to come. And he described the ministry of the Holy Spirit and put, put such a, a desire and, and a priority. And now he's saying, now don't leave town. Don't go off. Don't do anything else. Don't leave Jerusalem until you receive the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father. Now this promise, this promise is, is, goes back to Joel. And it's, notice it's the, the promise with a capital P because there's no other promise like this promise. The promise of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I don't think us, I don't think us, as, as Gentiles, as, as Americans, as modern church people, I don't think we can understand the weight of what he's saying unless you really understand historically what the, what the promise of the Holy Spirit really meant to these people because it was a game changer. It was an amazing promise. It was an, a, a promise. We'll talk more about that. It was a promise unlike any other promise, and it's the promise. Don't leave without this promise. He said, for John truly baptized, verse 5, with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So he breathed on them in the upper room and said, receive the Holy Spirit. I believe something of the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, something uh, the Holy Spirit's involved in our being born again. He's involved with everything that God does. But that was not the baptism of the Spirit. He's pointing to something else, a fuller experience, a different experience with the Holy Spirit. And he said, John, John baptized you. He immersed you, just like taking a piece of cloth and, and, and dipping it in a, a bowl of indigo dye. And it just become permeated, become completely, completely saturated. He said that John did that with water. I'm going to be doing that, and it is Jesus who does it. I'm going to be doing that with the Holy Spirit, with you. He's creating desire. He's also showing us what's most important to him. Everything that we're seeing here, from, from him getting them ready uh, about the Holy Spirit coming, the Holy Spirit was such a priority to Jesus. He just kept, kept it in front of them, kept this promise alive in front of them. And he's the one who's going to baptize us with the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, uh, therefore, when they came together, they, they said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? So they're still thinking of him kicking out the Romans. He's, they're, they're still thinking of a, a physical kingdom, like, like there was boundaries before where God ruled and reigned over the, the, the nation of Israel uh, around the time of David and Solomon. They're wanting that back. Don't blame them. And they're still trying to figure out, is this going to happen? Is this the time you're going to restore it? And he says, it's not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost ends of the earth. He gets right back on point. He gets right back to the priority. This thing called the baptism of the Holy Spirit is super, super important to Jesus. 
And it's for that reason, because you can't possibly get your head around how life-changing that is, how amazing that is. You can't understand that any more than they could have understood it before the cross when he kept saying the Holy Spirit's coming, the Comforter's coming, the Helper's coming, someone's coming who's going to change your life. They couldn't get that. You sitting there can't fully understand what I'm saying. The only way you'll understand it is actually... Rather than saying, when I feel it, when I experience it, when I can touch it, then I'll believe it. We can't go there. That's not going to happen. But there's something about you becoming childlike and saying, if it's important to Jesus, it's going to be important to me. If it's a priority for the Father to call him the promise, then I want this experience. If my head can't figure it out, it doesn't really matter. If I can't really feel or see something... See, he's actually presenting the Holy Spirit who there's no way to define him. I mean, even when you saw uh, uh, the movement, the peaceful, beautiful movement of the Spirit coming upon Jesus in the wilderness when John baptized him, he's not a dove. He's not a bird. He's, he's like something you can't really put in the words. You can maybe come up with, you know, I've seen a dove move like that. Maybe it's kind of like that, but it's not. It's not a bird. It's not fire. It's not water. It's a person. It's a person who wants to come and change your life. And I don't think we should let up on this. I don't think we should take the pressure off or take the brakes off. I don't think we should back down. I think we should preach this until we're all in. I think we should preach this until it's our normal. It's that important to Jesus. I think the reason we're not seeing it these days is it hasn't really become that important to us. But it's everything. It's a game changer. It's worth pressing in for. It's worth fasting for. It's worth taking 40 days aside for. It's worth, in fact, they, they did 40 days. Then now they're going to do 10 days. 10 days of waiting. 10 intense days. No food. No work. No Wi-Fi. No books, no fellowship, just put cloistered together in a room, waiting with expectation for something that they cannot understand. But Jesus kept talking about it. Therefore, we're, we're going to do it. We're going to do what he said. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And this power isn't for you. It's to make you witnesses. It's to, it's to help you to have something to undo and outdo the works of darkness, to make a difference everywhere you go. Thomas gets a bad rap for that moment of doubting. <laughs> I don't blame him for doubting. I mean, it just the whole thing is just preposterous. Thomas is not a lifetime doubter. He's actually, there was a time when Jesus was going back into Jerusalem, back into Judea, and he could be killed. And it was Thomas who said, well, let's go with him. And if we get killed, we'll die with him. I mean, Thomas is no flake. Thomas, Thomas, they say, walked, stepped out of a boat on the shore of India and took India for Jesus. I mean, you got to have something under the hood. Thomas, we, do you want to be defined by one of your moments, one of your worst moments? I think, it's, I think it's wrong to call him Doubting Thomas for the rest of his life because he had one honest moment, one honest struggle. I wouldn't want to be defined by my moments like that. 
any more than Peter being defined by some of his worst moments. So then Jesus walked them half mile up out of Jerusalem, took them up the hill where he had come down on a donkey, on a colt, takes them up to Bethany, and he lifts off. It's called the Ascension. You can see it, verses 9 to 11. And, and they watch his sandals. They watch the bottom of his sandals disappear. And he says, and, and the angels came and said, just as you saw him lift off and go, he's going to come back exactly the same place, exactly the same way. Just so you know, there's going to be a world here when Jesus comes back. There's not, not going to be a nuclear holocaust. The world's not going to come to an end. No matter what Gretel says, we're not in annihilation. The world is not coming to an end. She doesn't know what she's talking about. These angels know what, she's talk, talk, what they're talking about. They said Jesus is coming back. And just as, he came, just as he left, he's coming back exactly the same way again. The whole world will see him. We're not heading towards annihilation. Hallelujah. So verse 12, they head back into Jerusalem and they entered the upper room and it tells who was there. And there's 120 of them. And um, they get back in the upper room. Look at verse 14. They're all in one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So James is there. I taught a whole sermon about James recently. What, what This mind-bending stuff he went through. James is now in the house. He's in the upper room. Mary's there. There's 120 of them. Can you imagine being in this room? And, and, and I've been to it. Nelson and I were in a place called the upper room. It's the historic site of the upper room. The building's been modified. It's been, re it's been rebuilt. It's been changed, but they, they believe it's the actual location. And the reason is, is David is, his tomb is below this upper room. And Peter preaches about David being, talks about David later on. But uh, it's not a very big room. 120 people, it's all stone. You got your cloak, which you camp in, which you can sleep with. So they got that. I've seen lots of people in India just roll themselves up into a cloak. Their feet are sticking out at the bottom and they're sleeping on concrete. Uh, we need a surda. They just could sleep anywhere. And you got three options. It's a prayer meeting. There's prayer and supplication. You got three options. You can stand, you can kneel, or you can lie for 10 days. There's not food. There's no you know, there's no monopoly, there's no Dutch blitz. It's not like they're passing the time with barbecue. They're there waiting for the Holy Spirit. Would you wait? Would you wait in a room where there's nothing for 10 days just to receive the Holy Spirit? I doubt it. I doubt it. I, we're just not, we're not captivated by the urgency of what Jesus was saying, the way Jesus, were the, the way these people were. I suppose if Jesus appeared to you and said, wait for 10 days, or wait, and not even put a time frame on it, something's going to happen to you, just wait for it, you'd probably wait. But we need to do it not because, not because Jesus said it to her, or because we saw it with our own eyes and handled it with our own hands. We need to do it because the scripture says so, because these people wrote something that Jesus said was important. For that reason alone, 
we should set aside our, our, our time, our busyness, our lives, and say, I want everything that God wants for me. I want this. They're in this upper room. Can you imagine, let's just get in that upper room for just a moment together. Can we do that? There's nowhere to go, nothing to do. Some people are kneeling. Some people have their face to the wall. And you hear sobbing over in the corner. And you hear praise bubbling out. And it's Mary. And Mary is praying to Jesus as God for the first time. And Mary is worshiping Jesus as her king and as her savior. And she's experienced new life. It's a whole different moment. Imagine James, and he's got Jose and, and Jude. There's others. There's a number of these brothers that are there. And they're spending time in prayer with Jesus for the first time. This must have been an amazing time. And they have no idea what's coming. They don't know when. Jesus didn't tell them how long. Even all the stuff that we've been gone through this past couple months, he doesn't tell us when it's going to end. He doesn't tell us on the front end. He doesn't say very much about that. Times and season are in the Father's authority. It's just our business to wait. It's our business to comply. It's our business to yield. It's our business to say, this doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense to my head. It's not comfortable for my body, but I'm in. I'm all in. Because he said so, because there's something awaiting me, something I can't fully understand, but it's important to Jesus. Therefore, it's important to me. That's, that's the place we must come to. Ten days is a long time. Have you ever, you ever got a cabin on the shore of some lake or pitched your tent someplace for a week? It's a long, long time. It's a long time. Ten days is a long time doing nothing. And it looks like it's nothing. Now, God could have said, uh, they've, been there, they've been there an hour. Let's, get, let's just do this whole thing. I've been wanting to do this now for, from the beginning of time. Let's just do it now. They're waiting. They're already assembled. Let's just do it. There's something in the waiting. There's something in the nothing. There's, something, there's a braiding that's taking place. There's a heart change that's taking place. Uh, Peter didn't really want to submit to that. He went back to fishing it earlier. He's missing out on the braiding experience where God twists us and God conforms us and God lines our hearts with his heart and our mind with his mind and our motives with his motives and his, his ways become our ways. And that's what God's doing. That's, that's the powerful thing about waiting. It looks like you're doing nothing, but something is changing. Something is happening. Even if you're coming to the end of yourself, that's something. And he always does this waiting. This waiting always precedes an amazing moment where he pours out his best and he tips his big hand towards us, waiting, that coming to nothing, a time of humbling, a time of, of getting rid of self, a time of, of saying, I don't feel like doing this. This doesn't feel good to me. I don't like this. But he said to wait, I'm waiting. And then he rewards it with something you cannot possibly 
understand or fully get your head around. He pours out himself. He does something. He manifests himself some way. All through, all through Bible history, he has people waiting. He has Moses waiting for seven days on the mountain. He's up there. There's fire. There's smoke. But there's nothing else. There's nothing to do. Nowhere to go. Nothing to eat. Nothing happens. And then he starts downloading the Ten Commandments, the greatest revelation ever given to man. And he takes it down. I mean, it was worth waiting for. Anyone who's waited upon the Lord would say, I was not disappointed. I was not disappointed. He gave me something. He did something that I couldn't have got any other way. But he had to peel me layer by layer. He had to get at the core of my being. He had to get at the center of my heart. He had to get me past me. But he'll never disappoint you. When you wait upon the Lord, he will pour out something. I knew a guy one time, he waited on the Lord, he fasted, he fasted 40 days. Nothing happened. 40 days, no food, locked himself away. He said the whole thing ended with, all he saw was the feet of Jesus. They looked like brass, polished brass. And Jesus spoke to him, said, I make the, feet of my, the place of my feet glorious. You'll never be disappointed waiting upon the Lord. You'll never be disappointed of saying, I've had my own way. I can eat anytime. I can, I can watch something anytime. I can, I'm going to wait. I'm going to separate myself. I'm going to let him work a work in me. God's after something. I can't figure it out with my head, but God's after something. And that's what was happening. Ten days, 120 people in an upper room. And when they came out, they come out with something they could never have imagined. They were not disappointed. During that time, they also said, you know, let's talk about Judas. Nobody wanted to talk about him. They said, we have to talk about him. Verse 15, down to 20. They said, you know, the Holy Spirit spoke through uh, David, through the mouth of David in the Psalms about Judas. Judas had a wife and kids, according to the Psalms. Judas had a a ministry, a calling. They completely missed it. And said, we have to replace him. The scripture talks about this. And they wanted to be scriptural. And they set down some guidelines that it has to be someone, whoever replaces Judas, has to be someone who's been with us from the beginning, who can comprehend the context. And um, and then they drew lots. And they did this, they did this, this is before the baptism of spirit, this is before the church had begun, and this is the only time it happened. It's not a model for anything. After they drew lots, they never drew lots again. After they had the Holy Spirit, they didn't draw lots. After they established uh, apostles, uh, prophets, teachers, evangelists, and they set up the church. Later on, it's the bishops. Here's Paul's writing to Timothy. You choose the elders that are among you. He doesn't use lots anymore. It was what they had. It's what they understood. It's what, where they were at. They wanted it to be clearly God's word, their, their, uh, God's will. They're sincere. They're sincere. They're, they're doing what they know. And they actually go through the process of, of choosing a disciple, an apostle, to replace Judas. You see in verse 26 where this happened. Now, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. 
when the day of Pentecost was fully come, and they were all in one accord. They got there because they'd been peeled. They got there because God had molded them. God had shaped them. God had scrubbed their hearts with a wire brush. I mean, they're in one accord. They are unified. The reason they've been unified is they passed through something together. I think that's why we need to be church. I think, that, I think the reason now, listen, the reason God is doing something these days with us, he wants to do it together. It's not an individualistic thing. It's not something you can just get on your own at home. There's something about a church that passes through something, a church that goes through something, a church that prays together, a church that says, uh, I was there when that happened. I was there when that broke out. I was there during that crisis. I was there during those times. There's something about being together. And that was, God honored it. Here they are, they're in one accord. And suddenly, verse 2, suddenly there was a sound of a mighty Russian wind. And, and it doesn't, I don't know that their clothes were blowing or their hair was being moved, but there's this roar. I was in Hong Kong one time when a typhoon came in. It sounds like a freight train coming through your bedroom. It's just this awful, awful, terrifying roar, amazing sound. And they looked at each other. They could hear the sound. I think God's breathing again. He could just part the Red Seas with the breath of his nostrils. Something's happening. They're hearing the sound of this mighty Russian wind. What an amazing moment. Can you imagine them just looking at each other? What is this? One time there were a group of people up in Canada, not very far from where Sharon Brevet has her ministry, in a little place called Shawville, Quebec. And I happened to read this one time. There are people who said, we want God. We want Pentecost again. We want we want what God did here in Acts 2. We want, and these are people, and this is a, like early 1900s, and, and they're hungry for God. And they said, let's go to the woods, and let's wait upon God. And they went out, and it's mosquito-infested woods. <clears throat> and they, they, they took their canvas tents, and they just left their businesses. And they left the comfort of their homes, and they went to the North Woods of Shawville, and it's just rough. It's tamarack swamps, there's wolves, and they just pitched their tents, and, they, and, they, and their prayer was, we want Pentecost. We want Pentecost. We want what Jesus said. We want what Jesus said. The writer of the story said that <clears throat> there was a moment that they were just laying on the, on the fourth floor, crying out to God, and the sound of a mighty Russian wind came into the forest, it was so awesome that the horses broke their tethers and ran, bringing their carriages and, and, and their reins flapping behind, broke their tethers, and about 100 horses running through the woods, terrified at the sound of the mighty Russian wind. And they experienced this. There, there's a sound of a hurricane in the room, and then they look at each other, and their heads are on fire. Can you imagine, they just, everybody, Mary, her head's on fire. James, Peter, everybody, they, they, they've never heard of this before. They've never seen this before. This wasn't, listen now, this wasn't biblical. In a sense, you could proof text it. Nothing like this had happened before. And certainly nothing like this had ever happened to them. 
Imagine looking at each other and you've gotten to know each other, kind of like the way we've gotten to know each other, and their heads are on fire. And then they go to explain it, they go to question it, they go to say something, and when they speak, they're speaking in a language they've never learned before. And it's just bubbling out of them, and they start to say something, and they're no longer speaking Aramaic. Aramaic. They're speaking about 18 different languages. I mean, they're just, and, and it's hilarious. It's an amazing moment. They're being filled with a power from on high. They're experiencing the wonderful Holy Spirit. In fact, just a few, few verses later, they're accused of being drunk. I think they looked a little tipsy. I think they looked too happy for 9 o'clock in the morning. I think they had silly grins on their faces. I think, I think they were just bubbling over. And I've seen this happen so many times for people, especially people coming out of a traditional background when they receive the powerful Holy Spirit at the hand of Jesus. And this joy, this an amazing joy, this sense of righteousness, a, a wonderful peace bubbles up within them, and they're beside themselves. And they're all speaking in a language. Every one of them. Mary is, she's trying to talk, and it comes out in a language that only the Father knows. What an amazing moment. Now listen, they weren't taught to do this. They weren't coached. They weren't, they weren't, they had no idea what to expect. They were just yielded. I mean, if, if he'd given them quarters, they could have stood on their head and spit quarters. They were just so open to whatever God wanted for them. How open are you? How open are you? Do you have to understand it before you're in? You have to feel it with your hand and put your, you have to be able to do, run a taste test on it before you understand it, before you experience it, before you want it, before you'll submit. I think they just said, we just want it all. We just want whatever Jesus wants for us. What a place to come to. I don't think we can get there in the busyness of our lives. I don't think we can get there. I think it comes in the waiting. I think something happens in the waiting where you give up on you and your expectations, and your limitations, and your understanding, and, 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 and what, what you will allow and what you won't allow. There's something that just happens when you just, day after day, you just want more of God. You just want whatever he wants. You just want to submit. You just want the king to have his way. And what his way is, is that the Holy Spirit would come through us in torrents with power. Or you can have your own life. We've been calling our evening meetings the Sunday evening meetings an afterglow. And the idea with that is there's just stuff that we can't even do on a normal church Sunday morning. There's family business. There's babies to dedicate. There's baptisms. There's announcements. There's stuff that has to happen. We get that. We understand that's life. We understand that. But what if we set aside a few more hours later in the day where we can just wait before the Lord? We can pray. We go deeper and be challenged and prophesy and Try preaching and try prophesying. I mean, it's just, it's a golden opportunity to wait upon the Lord, to go deeper. I don't think we can get it with church per usual. I don't think we can get it with our lives per usual. I think it comes in the waiting. I think it comes when we avail ourselves. I think it comes when we say, I can get a hamburger any night of the week. I'm after God. I can watch something on TV any night of the week. Tonight, I'm, I'm, I'm saying, God, here I am. 
have your way with me. Do something. Do something I, I can't figure out. Do something that's beyond my thinking. Do something beyond my expectation. Those who wait upon the Lord will never be disappointed for having waited. Amen? If you notice, I'm preaching every sermon I've preached in the past two months all in one sermon. It's kind of, and I think this is the last of it. I don't, I don't want to preach about coronavirus anymore. I think there's a door that's opened up and a window that's opening up and a field and sunshine right around the corner for us. But I want this for you. The reason I want this for you is I've seen it change so many lives. The reason I want this for you is because it was so important to Jesus. It was so important to the Father, he called it the promise. It's a game changer. Don't leave. Don't leave Jerusalem without it. Don't just go back to busyness. You know my biggest concern for all of you? You're all such hardworking people. You all have amazing businesses. You're all self, mostly self-employed or working for people who are self-employed. You're, you're, you're gifted and given to that whole thing. Here's what I'm concerned about. Here's what I'm concerned about. I think for every one of your businesses that has been on this pause, you're going to experience an, an inrush of business that you can never have imagined. In abundance of business, you're going to be asked to do business. You're going to be asked to go back to work at a level you never were at before, a level of prosperity, a level of, of, a level of a, a abundance of everything. And the biggest ripoff would be that if we lose what we've gone through and just go back to crazy busy schedules and we don't tap into what God has for us, that would be the biggest disappointment. You'll ever, your biggest regret would be, boy, what was that for? <laughs> what was all the work he was doing in my heart for? And I'm just maxed out with business. I'm not saying you should say no, especially because I, I understand that there's been a, a loss of business. I believe at the end of this year, when you tally your books, you're going to be astounded at the bounty, the, the bumper crop of business that you could never have gotten on your own before. And I can say that mostly because I know you've been in an amazing giving mode. Everyone's been caring for each other, making sure everyone's tucked in, making sure no one goes without. You've just been all giving. I just see a giving happening, meals being prepared for people, all kinds of giving. Giving when people are dying. I have seen giving. The Stofus family has been giving this past few weeks at a level that just astounds me. I mean, it's not just even the past few weeks, the past few years, but it culminated this past few weeks. All kinds of giving, a tremendous amount of giving. I think all that has to release something. Um, but wouldn't it be something if it released something spiritual and not just something monetary? Wouldn't that be something? I think there's something God wants to pour out upon us, something fresh, something new, another level, something perhaps we've not tasted before or in a long time. Let's bring our mouths to the fountain. Let's tell them, I'm in. I don't need to understand this. I don't need to figure it out. I don't even need to see anything. I'm here. Why don't we stand together? One little prayer won't do it, but we got to start somewhere with your own heart. Why don't you say, Lord, look no further than me.
I want your best. I want what you have for me. I'm not satisfied with the American dream, the American way of life, the prospect of just retiring with a three-car garage and a mortgage. I'm not interested in that. I want life. I want life. I want life I don't have. I want life that doesn't come from around here. I want more. Tip your big hand upon me. Convince them that you're hungry. Father, braid our hearts with the things that are most important to your heart. Help us to become witnesses. Help us to share the gospel. Give us new power, new boldness, something to give away, something that makes a difference. Father, don't leave us where we were at. I pray for a greater witness, a greater witness than we've ever had before, a greater witness in our work People are hungry for you. Lord, we need power. We need something outside of ourselves, something beyond ourselves. We need a helper. We need grace. We need someone to walk with us, someone to coach us. We need someone to walk alongside of us. Help us, Father. I pray for everybody who's part of our work here. I pray, Lord, that every one of them, young and old, would receive the wonderful, powerful Holy Spirit in fresh ways, in first ways. And I'm asking for this in the name of Jesus. Is that your heart? Is that your desire? You don't have to convince me, but you do have to convince him. Father, what a wonderful story we previewed today. Lord, we love every piece of it, every part of it. Lord, what you did then, do today. What you did for them, do for us and for our children. In Jesus' name.